Our call to worship is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I knew this. So Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Our Old Testament reading is from Malachi chapter 3. I'll be reading the entire chapter. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord. But who can endure the days of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in the days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, who deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessings that you will not have enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your field will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will, be, will call you blessed, for yours will be the delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have spoken arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve the Lord. What do we gain by carrying out this re these requirements and going out like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other. And the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be treasured possession. Or they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as the Father has compassion and spares his Son who serves him. And you will, again, see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. 
Our New Testament reading is Galatians 6, 12 through 18. That's page 1078 in your pew Bible. And it reads, Those who want to impress others by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. It's fantastic to have our youth involved in all aspects of worship. I don't know if you caught the lyric, but how appropriate to today's message. My heart and my soul, I give you control. Did you hear that line? Yeah. What does it mean to organize our lives around the story of Jesus? And certainly that lyric speaks to that idea. Well, I've got uh, hours worth of material and about um, 14 minutes, I would say, 19 maybe, to deliver that. I'm going to start with the texts and expand out from there because I, I think there's, I don't want to overwhelm us today. I don't want to overwhelm myself and I certainly don't want to overwhelm you. There's so many ways in which we could think about what it means to organize our lives around the story of Jesus. And if you look even at the New Testament and, and the people who were part of his story, each of them did things just a little differently. Uh, each of them had a different ministry. Each of them didn't, in fact, they didn't even all get along right there in the first generation of, of Christians. There were those that uh, liked to travel together and those who parted company. And it wasn't because they didn't love Jesus, and it wasn't because they didn't all have something valid to say. And so today's message is neither an affirmation of every path, nor is today a prescription for a single path. But I want you to embrace what it means for yourself. What sort of commitment are you called to as you think, am I going to organize my life around the story of Jesus, and what does that look like? It's, I want to assure you, the most, single most important question you can be asking in life right now. Nothing could be more important. So we're going to start with Malachi because I'd like to see that as a sort of transitional piece for us, moving from what it meant, Old Testament, and what it means, New Testament. Now, two weeks ago, we talked briefly just about this in, in uh, our, our time together. Many of you were here, a number of you were not. For those of you who were not here, the recap looks something like this. God came to the people of Israel long before they existed as such in the form of a call and in the form of a promise. From Garden of Eden time onward, there was prophecy and promise. And from the time of Abraham forward, there was promise. And it was to Abraham's generation forward that the outward signs of what it meant to be 
a chosen person started to reveal themselves. God asked that he circumcise himself in his household, and that's referenced in our text today. In that particular time and period, uh, this manifestation became an identifier. Now, it seems a very odd one because I'm sure they were clothed even then. And I, I just can't imagine a way in which that became meaningfully socially, except that fathers uh, circumcised their sons and eventually the practice took a, a form of uh, happening with the priesthood and experts in that. And even today it's continued um, with a moil who, who knows what he's doing, hopefully, with that particular kind of operation. The outward manifestation was there, and the inward manifestation was, I will be your God, you will be my people, I will make a covenant with you, uh, and that covenant looks like this. I will protect you and care for you and lead you and guide you and prosper you, and you're going to obey my precepts and commands. And we studied that two weeks ago a little bit from the standpoint that we realized Israel didn't do a very good job of that. In fact, they did no better a job of that than we do today. So with their disobedience and their constant uh, failure to keep covenant, their constant failure to keep law, their constant wanderings from God, eventually Jeremiah comes up with a new covenant. I'm going to write my covenant on your heart and my commands on your heart, the fleshy tables of your heart. In other words, the transformation is going to come from within. We're going to be God's people, and we won't have to be taught because we're going to know by his having written it in our hearts by his spirit, by his presence, we're going to know in which direction we ought to be going. Malachi is this last book of the, New, of the Old Testament, right before what we call the intertestamental period, and there were other books written which are not included in the Protestant Bibles um, that, that are of a spiritual nature, a religious nature, that, that bridge that gap of time between Old Testament and New. But for our purposes, Malachi is one of the last speaking prophets to this period. And he talks about covenant, but he also talks about it in a prophetic sense, which is why I think it's a nice bridge to the New. There are three categories that he, he talks about, or four, and they carry forward to today. The, the, nothing has changed. Uh, Ecclesiastes has it right. Nothing is new under the sun. Everything is the same. In this sense, it was a covenant breaking through injustice. And the words that we heard were, uh, I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me. That's, that's the categories that he gives for injustice. And I'll expound upon that a little later as we get to the New Testament imperatives. All of that is done in the context of a prophecy. I will send my messenger, verse uh, 18, no, 1, 3, 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me then suddenly the Lord whom you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. So that seems to me to be speaking of the Messiah and the promised Messiah, the one looked for, the one who would come. But then we get into sort of a dual understanding, perhaps, a prophetic and an, op and 
an apocalyptic vision as well. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. Is that not the sort of second coming we look forward to? Is that not more descriptive of what is to come than what, is, what has been? And yet Jesus did refine. He did purify. He did clean up. He took the religious systems that were, and he set them on their head, set them for a new direction, spoke to the injustice, spoke to what was going on. Well, without belaboring this chapter too hard, we get to the section on tithing, which I think is familiar to you all. And that one speaks to the relationship of our heart to the God who gives us everything. That's all that speaks to. It really boils down to that. Are you going to be cheap with someone who's given you everything, or are you going to be generous? Are you going to honor the God who has given you life and sustenance and care? And he says, remember that I've done that for you by returning a tenth. Are you going to do that, or is it optional to you? That's one of the questions you have to ask as you organize your life around the story of God and Christ. Is what offerings do we bring? And when we get to the New Testament, we'll find that it's not just about money. We'll find that it's about our bodies as living sacrifices. We'll find that it's about our time. We'll find that it's about our focus, our, our purpose. The third thing that Malachi brings up is those who speak arrogantly against God. And I want to spend just a few minutes here because I haven't heard a sermon on this, I don't think, in my lifetime. And yet I think it speaks to our age very well. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Verse 13. I'm in Malachi 3, verse 13. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? Now notice right off, Malachi is using the same rhetorical device that he did with tithes and offerings. Okay? But you have robbed me, says the Lord. Well, how have we robbed you? You have robbed me in tithes and offerings. He's using the same rhetorical device that he used just a little bit earlier. And now the question is, how have we spoken against you? Because interestingly enough, to speak against God in this case may not be a matter of word. It may be a matter of action. Here's how it looks. Verse 14, you have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. How is this different from the Psalms? Haven't you read where David says, why do the wicked prosper? Haven't you read where David rails with his fists raised, why is it that my enemies seem to do so well? Why is it that the evildoers, the wicked, all of these people, their way seems to be made straight? Why is it that I'm the one running, hiding, the one whose life is in danger? Why is it that I'm the one mourning? Why is it that I'm the one in trouble? David asked these questions, and we would say, in the form of a lament, this is exactly what we do and ought to do. There's nothing evil about it. So when Malachi, who is familiar with the Psalms, says something like this, is he contradicting what David did and said earlier? I don't think he is. He says, you've said following God is futile. 
That's what you've said. How have we said that? We've said it, or ancient Israel was saying it, by their lives. We go about like mourners. Have you ever heard of sadvenists? That's not an abbreviation for Seventh-day Adventist. That's something else altogether. Sadvenist is an Adventist who takes altogether too seriously the standards and obligations. We're not to have any fun, of course. You see, we don't dance, and we don't go to movies, and we don't engage the world's entertainments. We dress with all decorum. Life is serious and requires us not to be frivolous. Our vegan diets may cause extra gas, but we will grimace and smile through the pain. <laughs> you get where I'm going. There are many good things about temperance many good things about a judicial diet, many wonderful things about living a circumspect life and not filling our minds with garbage. Don't let me, in my little act there, persuade you that I'm not interested in those things. I am. But the Sadvenist is the one who carries all of that with a great deal of burden and weight and acts as if it's something that the Lord requires in every instance for their own salvation. Something I reject. God requires that we love him supremely and our neighbor as himself, that we give ourselves to the grace of Jesus Christ who died that we might live, that we believe that none of us should be lost and that in belief we find ourselves in him transformed and empowered for a different kind of living. Finally, Malachi speaks to the faithful remnant, which again could refer to the remnant of Israel left at the end of all of their occupations, the Babylonian invasion, the Medo-Persian invasion, and so forth. The, the, the diaspora, the Jews spread throughout the world such as they existed at that time. God's remnant, God's leftover. And certainly we would say it has a prophetic application. We're looking ahead to the end of time when we might be part of a remnant. We might be part of a people who continues to affirm the goodness of God, who unlike the arrogant who speak arrogantly against God, we have not said it's futile to follow God, but we found joy in that service. Moving on, we get to the Galatians text. I want to go there next, if you will uh, follow me back to that. For those of you who aren't familiar with our fellowship, I try to have texts read as our readings that correspond or are part of what I'm going to talk about as I speak. So hopefully you have a taste of the text before you get to the sermon time, and you can be processing how might these things relate, how do they connect, what is happening in these texts? Now, at the risk of belaboring the whole issue of circumcision, I want to sidestep that quickly to say 
The question is one of fleshly identification versus spirit identification. Okay. Paul is concerned with this issue because there were a group of people who said you had to become a Jew before you could become a Christian. You had to be an adherent to all of the codes and laws before you could be accepted by Christ. And Paul and Peter and the leaders of the early church, the disciples of Jesus said, no, that isn't the case. That isn't the way it is. Abraham was called and responded by faith and so he became the elect. That is the same case today. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on Gentile believers who are uncircumcised, the same as Jewish believers who are circumcised. Therefore, if God has sanctioned both, how can we make a difference? That was the issue of the time. Paul speaks to them because he's not interested in the circumcision question. He's interested in the new creation question. He's interested in what they're going to become, not what they are. He said, there are those who want to impress others by means of the flesh and are trying to compel you to be circumcised. They do this to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now, in the very early church, who were the persecutors? Was it the Jewish faith or was it the, the Roman government very early on? Jewish faith very early on. The very early church, post-resurrection, was barely a blip on Rome's radar. They had just killed the king of the Jews. From their point of view, politically, it was over. The movement of the way, the movement of Jesus wouldn't start really taking momentum until 50 days later at Pentecost, which we've studied recently. The only reason they do this is to be avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised so that they may boast about your circumcision. You see, it really comes down to, I'm in the club, now he's in the club, now we're both in the club, isn't it wonderful? Only what I want to impress upon you, as I think Paul does, is that organizing your life around the story of Jesus is not a statement that you make. Does that seem a little crazy? It's not a statement you make. It's a way you're going to live your life. So it isn't about joining a club. Paul sets it straight when he says this, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Nothing means anything, that is to say circumcision or not. What counts is the new creation, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Already, Paul had suffered. Already he had experienced a number of things, beatings, stonings. Already he had suffered for Christ. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if you're going to organize your lives around the story of Jesus, it's going to be more than joining a club. It's going to be more than joining a club. It's going to be allowing Jesus to fulfill the new covenant, that is to say, to write on our fleshy, the fleshy tables of our hearts, 
his, his will, his law. In other words, it's the circumcision of the heart that we all need. And with that circumcision, a willingness to die to the world, to live in Christ, the cross becomes the central feature of what it means to organize our lives around the story of Jesus. This is a hard teaching. I wish it weren't. I wish, can I be honest? Oh, I will be anyway. You know that I will. You don't have to, that's okay. You don't have to affirm it. I'm just going to be honest. I wish it were a club. It would be fun and easy. I wish that were all it were to it. I've joined the club. It's all good. I'm in. Done. Occasionally, I have to admit I'm lazy that way. Good thing is, I know I'm in good company. I know that many of you are too. And that's not a judgment. That's simply to say, this is the human experience. Paul says, I die daily. Yikes. I wake up, I make the decision, I'm going to organize my life today around the story of Jesus, and I die to myself because I say, Lord, I'm going to be buried with you in your crucifixion. And I'm not going to rise, but you're going to rise in me in your resurrection. And now the life that I live is not mine, but it's my life wrapped in yours. And now your life is going to be lived out in me. And that's going to be the life that I have today. That's going to be the life that I live today. That's a hard teaching. That's a hard teaching. And it's a wonderful teaching. We are the new creation. We are what he wants to renew. We are everything that he wants to claim and save, keep, rebirth, recreate. And in our journeys, if we're honest, at some point, we too will bear marks, whether they're psychological, whether they're relational, whether they're sociological, or whether we get to a point in history where they are again physical. We will bear marks in our bodies and in our psyches for following the living God, the one who calls us to something different one who calls us to organize our story around his story. I'm already out of time, but let's go to Romans 12 for just a moment. I was going to have this whole chapter read and elected to just have a couple of verses read, but let's see if this speaks to us a little bit more. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is our true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Paul takes it further, speaks not only of the transformation that we experience as we are buried with Christ and resurrected with Christ, but how in that resurrection and in that choice to be his, to follow, to live our lives through him, our minds are in fact renewed. For by the grace of me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think of yourself with clear judgment, sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each has one body with many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body. And each member belongs all to the others. We have different gifts. According to the grace given each of us, if your gift is, pro is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's to serve, then serve. If it's to teach, then teach. If it's to encourage, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, do it diligently. If it's show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what's evil, cling to what's good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. That seems to speak to the loving your neighbor as yourself. Never lacking in zeal, but keeping your fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud. Do not be, uh, be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not think you're superior. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. But be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, and I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him, some, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but, be, but overcome evil with good. Wow. I'm really close on this one. All right, sorry. Guess you had to see the movie. That's a tall list. Do I love others as much as I love myself? Do I love my enemy? Do I repay good, evil with good? Do I keep all of those things that he's at? That's a long list. That's longer than the commandments. What is Paul saying? Is he trying to impose upon us a new law? Is he saying that if we're going to be followers of Christ, it's not 10 commandments anymore, it's 20? You've heard it was this, but I'm going to make it even tougher on you. It's that. Is that what's happening in Romans chapter 12? See some of you shaking your head. I see most of you looking at me like it's potluck time. All things in due season. Two things going on here. One, we belong to one another, and it's our job to serve one another. And that's where my invitation earlier comes in. We're at nominating committee time. Joy to the world. But it's our chance to step up and use our gifts and serve one another in faith, hope, and love. It's that simple. We belong one to the other. It's more than a club. And then at the end of it, it says, here's what love looks like. Love is a supreme command. And if, if I had one way of telling you what it looks like to organize your life around the life of Christ, this would be my answer. If you said, Pastor, you've been talking for two months about this, give me one sentence. 
I'm, I'm tired of all this already. Give me one sentence. I know there are a few personalities like that. So here it is. Organizing your life around the story of Jesus, which is embedded in the story of God and humanity, comes down to this. Self-sacrificing love. Three words. Self-hyphenated words. Self-sacrificing love. That's what organizing our lives in the context of the New Testament looks like. How that plays itself out in your life can be very diverse between us. Just as there are many gifts among us, just as we're all different, playing different roles and functions in the body of Christ, so our response to self-sacrificing love as we plan and participate in that looks a little bit different. But I'm going to give you just a couple of ideas to be thinking about in the broader scope of what our current world and climate is all about. In the face of the negativity and the hardship and the terrible things that happen in our world, you might choose to become a person of affirmation, a person of praise, a person who carries that song in his or her heart, a person of prayer. You might become a person who realizes that when you have given yourself to Christ and you have buried yourself with Christ in his crucifixion and been resurrected with Christ in his resurrection, when you go and sit with somebody, even in silence, you are the presence of Jesus Christ to them. And you may choose to bring that presence, that grace, that forgiveness, that hope, that peace to everyone you come into contact with. You may become a peacemaker, a reconciler, someone who bridges broken relationships. You may be a person who's able to embrace the causes of justice, and there are many. I could speak to social justice. We've had quite a week or a couple of weeks, haven't we? The race issue in America is alive and well, and what is our response to that? What is our thinking? Are we interested in truth? Are we interested in justice? Are we interested in the plight of those who are unfairly targeted or excluded or included but perpetually not satisfied? How about economic justice? Do we believe in fair wages? Is it okay with us? Would we like to buy the $12 t-shirt because it's made by a nine-year-old in Indonesia in a factory, which that nine-year-old works 15, 18 hours a day? Or are we willing to spend 20 or 30 bucks on a t-shirt made by an adult somewhere in the part of the world where Children aren't abused in that way. Are we ready to say no to slavery and human trafficking? Are we ready to embrace those who have been incarcerated, justly or unjustly, around us? Are we willing to care for the planet? 
What does it look like for you? Is it about service? Is it about a cause? I can't answer that. I just come back to those three words, or two, two words, one hyphenated, self-sacrificing love. I want to organize my life around the story of Jesus. I don't have that all figured out yet. I have the career hazard of never being a volunteer. I have the career hazard of choosing to give my entire time and presence and being to the service of God and having the dual blessing and curse of one being supported in that financially and making a living in it and two never being a volunteer. And as I wrestle with what it means for me as a pastor, what it means for me as a person, as a spiritual leader, to organize my life around the story of Jesus, those are the words that just keep coming to me. In my story, in my context, through my influence, what does it look like to live out self-sacrificing love? And I come to you with the conviction that the question is no different for you. The answer may look a little different, but the question's no different. And so, I'd invite you to think about this week. Think about that. I'd like to invite our deacons to come forward and collect our offerings. And I'd like you to give in accordance with the way God has blessed you and responsively as he's invited us all to do. Lord, wherever we are in our journey of faith, help us to organize our lives around the story that means the most to us. And in this context, I pray, it's the story of Jesus. Amen.